Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Welcome to Startup Competitors Podcast. We are celebrating the 100th episode live with Mike Kelly. Unfortunately, co-founder Steve Jones couldn't be here this morning. And I am Kristen Cooper. I am the CEO and founder of the Startup Ladies and thrilled to be hosting this morning's 100th anniversary celebration. So Mike, I'm so excited to talk to you about why did you create Startup Competitors? Well, before we do that, uh, I got to say, this is this your first time uh, hosting a podcast? It is. Very you, first. You are already the best host ever in the history of podcasts because you brought with you all of the things that we need to make mimosas. That's right. And we're going to this morning during the podcast. Which is uh, fantastic. Right. Uh, I, I'm, I'm speechless now. All future guests will I'll have to do something. They're going to need to step up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm the host. That means I have to bring the mimosas, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you could think about maybe, you know, if the guests step up and bring things, maybe the shows get better. This will quickly turn into the Drink Culture podcast if we, <laughs> if we keep going down that path. Could be. And then we also brought champagne flutes and noisemakers. And these are spinach artichoke souffles. So Amazing. I think that obviously... You know, it's a woman that is setting the bar so high. A uh, woman in This tech. is true. Yeah. So, gentlemen, live up to what I'm doing yeah. in future podcasts. I speak for all gentlemen. We cannot. <laughs> all right. So, um, should we should we break open the champagne? Yeah. Yeah. I got this. You got it already. Woo! There we go. Congratulations. All, all right. right. All right. And then you did ask me a question in there somewhere. What was that? Yeah, I I think that I and all of the listeners would love to learn why did you create this podcast and the company? Yeah, so I probably need to talk a little bit about the company first. So Steve was here at Developer Town for uh, a few years. And when he was here, he did a mix of marketing work for us. Uh, and later in his time here, he did uh, some sales work with us. And in the early years of Developer Town, we did a lot more work with startups than we do today. Uh, today, we work mostly with corporate clients. But in the early years, we would hear anywhere from man, five to 20 startup pitches a week Wow! for uh, people who we're potentially looking for funding for people who are looking for us to help them build the product for people who are just looking for advice uh, because Mike and I have, have played that role. Cheers. Cheers to you and to startup competitors. Thank you. And so one of the things that we quickly learned while taking all of those pitches is uh, uh, if you've heard a lot of pitches, which I believe you have, mm-hmm. uh, is, is that you very quickly have to find ways to separate the crazies <laughs> from the people who you really should spend time with. And then even with the people you really should spend time with, you need to separate the people who need help and education from the people who are really ready to kind of move forward. And, and you're probably, it's worth your spending your time giving a ton of advice and pouring into them. And one of those, so we'll leave the filtering the crazies from the saying aside. Uh, that's a different, <laughs> that's a different podcast. Um, but one of the things that is very quick to see when you meet with uh, somebody and they start pitching an idea is the, the quickest filter that you can apply as to how much time has the person really spent with this is to look online at competitors in the space. 
And so the quickest test we would do is when somebody would come in, they would, they would say, hey, look, I have an idea. It's Uber for interns, which, by the way, is a thing. That's a real startup. We would then go to Google, search Uber for interns. We would find the first thing that t- turns up and we would say, well, Kristen, tell me about um, what do you know about company X? And you would look at me with a blank face like, I, I, I don't know. And it's like, well, it, it kind of looks like Uber for interns. In fact, right here it says Uber for interns. Right. And it, and it was just like pouring cold water on them. Yeah. We did this so much. And, it, and again, it was not, it's typically not hard to find these competitors. We ended up doing this so much that Steve and I developed like this algorithm for how do you go find these competitors? And then what would be, and, and it's not a deal breaker if, if somebody, if your idea exists out in the world, that's not a deal breaker. In many cases, that's validation. True. What you really want to understand is, are there a bunch of dominant players is there one dominant player? Is it a hundred competitors, but none of them have really won the market yet? Is there 300 competitors and there's 50 of them failing every week? That's a different scary thing, which we see that a lot. And, and so all these market dynamics emerge when you start to, to do that research. So eventually Steve ended up leaving developer town, leaving me to, and, and some of the others here to, to do all those uh, filters. And it, it just occurred to me that that thing that Steve and I were doing, that could be a product. Like that could be a service where, you know, in advance of going in and, and having that meeting or even in thinking of competitive research for a pitch to investors or uh, even in putting together product roadmap and strategy, what would be the key things that you would look for? And uh, so Steve and I got together and we said we could turn that into a product. And that's where startup competitors came from. Uh, how do you identify the competitors most relevant to your business today? What are the key pieces of information you would want to know about those competitors uh, on a go-forward basis? And then how can you leverage that to come up with insights for what that means for your product and strategy? There's been some amazing examples of that, particularly as we've seen the same idea again and again and again. So I'm sure you experience this as well. Again, anytime you hear pitches, something happens out in the world politically or technology-wise, and then five people within the course of two weeks will come in with the exact same idea mm. because they all heard the same NPR podcast on their <laughs> drive into work. They all read right. the same, you know, New York Times article. They all, they, like, all the stimuluses were the same. And so they all, they're all very smart people and they came up with the same idea, right? Let me ask you a question about that. Do yeah. you find that people are spending a little bit more time developing their concept before they come to you? Or is it truly... Heard this on the radio. I was at a party this weekend, and I thought this would be an amazing startup. Yeah, those uh, we we get those. M- mostly, they're spending a little bit more time than that, and that's actually part of the problem. We've seen people who've come in uh, who've spent months of of thinking about and sketching, and they've maybe they've spent money with designers, and maybe they, and and then and then they you know we we show them the five competitors in the market. One of them has just raised fifty million dollars in Series A capital, and they're just like they're blown away. And it's like, why would you spend money before you even know who you know that somebody else is solving this, right? But normally it's not, you know, that would be the extreme the other way, right? Normally it's, you know, I had this idea. I, I'm kind of exploring it. I'd like to know what it would cost to build a product in this space is, is typically the question, right? If I wanted to go raise money, how much would I need to raise? What would that look like? So anyway, that's where startup competitors came from. So Steve and I built this product. We launched it. Man, this would have been three years ago. We did a bunch of AdWords for it. 
turns out, we, so we have this theory that maybe we could get those founders to come here first before they, you know, come into a, a consulting firm. And, and our experience is not unique. I've talked to the Atomic Object guys. Mike Persiglia was was on this podcast a year ago and shared the same story. They, they experienced the same thing. And if you talk to, you know, your mid-tier consulting firm in any market, any major market, they, we all experience this. We all have the same, like, desire to, to help these founders. And, uh, and so, so anyway, uh, we had this theory that we, we would just buy a bunch of AdWords on competitive analysis and things like that. And founders would land here first, spend the, spend the 500 bucks to get the report and, uh, save themselves a lot of time and heartache. This is an awful idea. Uh, turns out the founders who aren't going to go Google the competitors themselves also aren't going to be Googling to hire a service to go do that research for them. In hindsight, that seems very obvious. Um, <laughs> But uh, to us, it wasn't so obvious at the time. So we ran it for about a year with, we, we did get some traffic and uh, we have some corporate clients. It's actually a great pitch from a B2B sales perspective. I can go to a venture fund and say, hey, you're clearly not going to run every startup through this, but at any startup that you go into diligence on, this would be a great way instead of taking their word for who their competitors are for 500 bucks, you can get a third party and tell you who their competitors are. And we can maybe even white label that for you with your fund um, logo and stuff like that. And it can be a value add as part of the diligence process where you come back to them and say, hey, look, you know, our team did this research and, and we did some of that. So we have a, a number of angel groups, investment funds that leverage, leverage us on a B2B basis. And then a couple of marketing firms uh, and PR firms that use us uh, on the, uh, from a customer research perspective when they bring on new accounts, they leverage us to kind of understand the competitive landscape for their clients. That makes sense. So, 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 so that aside, um, those B2B sales were fine in the first year and, and continue to be fine, but we really never got any mass market traction. So then I was thinking the next year, so we, we kind of, a, this is a side hustle for, for Steve and I, it's not, it's not anybody's full-time job. We kind of let it run for a year and uh, it, it was fine. But as we were doing our strategy for, this would have been, this podcast has been going for two years now, hundred episodes. So our strategy for 20, I would have been 2017, we started to think about how would we want to market this going forward? Because clearly AdWords isn't working. And then I started thinking, if you think of that time, startup podcast uh, from Gimlet was really big and uh, how I built this with Guy Raz, which is Love a great, great podcast was like, that was like, it was still new and shiny. And uh, uh, the pitch, I don't know if you know the pitch, the pitch is like one of my favorite podcasts. Also now a Gimlet Media podcast. It wasn't originally when I first started listening, Gimlet ended up acquiring it, was was going strong. And, and I just thought to myself, you know what, like the people who are listening to these three podcasts, if you're listening to Startup, if you're listening to The Pitch, if you're listening to How I Built This, then you would want to buy the Startup Competitors Report, right? Because you're clearly interested in thinking about starting a company. So I'm going to go advertise on a podcast. So I called all three of those podcasts. Whew. The numbers are jaw dropping for what it takes to to advert. I mean, congratulations to uh, NPR and to uh, Kimlet. It is very expensive to advertise on those podcasts, and they're all very gracious and kind. And uh, but it's you know, there's a reason why it's forward advertising on startup and not somebody like me. And so that got me thinking of like, well, okay, I, we clearly can't afford that investment, but 
I could start a podcast. I know a lot of startup founders in town. I can leverage my network. I feel like it'd be easy for me to sit down with a founder every week. Which turns out that's it's been pretty true. I quit. I, I tapped my network quicker than I thought I would. Really? Uh, I really. I kind of did. Yeah. It was a great list. I was going through it just last night. Uh, I've had amazing people on here, and that's that's actually the best part. I would say the last fifty episodes ish, give or take, are all me meeting new people and uh, learning about the amazing things that they're doing. And like that, that has actually been the best part and um, leveraging the startup ladies, leveraging uh, G-Beta, leveraging, you know, some of the other great organizations in town that can be feeder organizations to me to even filter out, you know, some of the best entrepreneurs who are, who are either doing some of the most exciting things or they themselves are just ridiculous to talk to. Uh, Megan from Plan Forward, who, you know, when I'm sitting here talking to her, I'm just like, holy cow, like, I thought I knew how to grind. Like, <laughs> you are just an amazing human being. Yeah. And what does Plan Forward do? Plan Forward uh, is uh, software for medical offices to uh, help them better with, I, I might butcher this a little bit, but I think it's a, a mix of helping them with uh, outreach and bringing people in and then uh, moving people to subscription plans uh, for, is it dental offices? Uh, moving them to subscription plans for dental offices. Oh, I've met her. She's come to a startup lady center. And I know exactly who you're talking about. So sorry if I got that wrong. No, it sounds, uh, that, that sounds pretty close. That's, that's from memory. Yeah. But the, you know, like, like the, just those experiences have been really rewarding for me. So I'm, yeah. I'm actually glad that I'm not talking to people that I've talked to a million times before. Right. Uh, it's, it's all, it's all new. And that was theory number one. We would uh, invest in this podcast to see if we could build the kind of follow followers that would, would want to eventually buy this product. Maybe that would lead to sales. Uh, and then we had another theory on maybe how to grow the B2B sales side of things. And it turns out this podcast hasn't actually converted into more sales in the wild either. It's hmm. it's doing better than AdWords. It does lead to a little bit of, um, it, it has led to a little bit of traction if we we ask all of our customers how they heard about us. And this is one of the ways that we uh, we occasionally hear that, but it's not had the impact we'd hoped for. But it's had a second impact, which is for me, it's created a phenomenal way for me to get to know other founders in my community around the country. Um, I've got five podcast interviews scheduled coming up for folks all around the country that I met here in Indianapolis. It is a nice way in. They're launching, yeah. To meet and talk with anyone you want to. Yeah. Usually a CEO will at least be curious, go to your website and think, maybe I should do this. Yeah. So it's been, it's been really rewarding. That's awesome. I can see how one, you're meeting fascinating people. Two, you must be learning a lot as you're talking to them. This is the Years ago, I, I used to keep up a blog, which I, I don't do anymore. Um, I used to blog a lot. And if you're a regular blogger, you know that a blog is often more for you than for the people who are reading it. It gives you a chance to experiment with ideas, to put them down on paper. You put them out there in the wild and people give you a ton of feedback on those ideas. And you can ask questions and people will respond and things like that. It turns out a podcast is the same thing. This is about me getting the people in the room who I want, who I think I can learn something from. And, it, and it's everybody. I, I still learn stuff from first-time founders who uh, have no idea what they're doing. And, and <laughs> They're lovable. And they'll say some yeah. amazing thing that is super insightful. And I'm just like, oh, I've been doing this for like years and I never thought of that. So for me, it's a chance to explore uh, with each person I sit down with. I'm, I'm kind, kind of trying to find out what's their strength, where did they come from, where are they going to have an insight that I've never had, uh, and then try to exploit that insight. 
for me. And it's a nice side effect if my listener can get something out of that too, right? Yeah. Uh, Where they can get that same insight. So I know you've got an incredible business mind. It's sure you're doing something good as an educator here and it's fun for you. But you mentioned this is a side hustle. You've got a, a number of other gigs that you are leading right now. Yeah. And I know a great mind like yours probably has an exit in mind for something like this. So I understand how the initial reason was to help gain traction for your other product. But now this seems to have picked up more speed than the other company. So what's the end goal now with Startup Competitors Podcast? I don't know that I have one yet. Uh, for the podcast, um, we, you know, we have some thoughts on startup competitors and where that can go. But with the podcast right now, I'm still enjoying getting to know the format. How can I be a better interviewer? How can I make people more comfortable? How can I, when I start asking questions that go towards a dead end, how can I recognize that more quickly and switch gears? Right. It's, it's hard. Uh, it's really hard to do dynamically and on the fly to try to create interesting content and make sure it's interesting content. Right. Who are the interviewers who you look up to? Oh, Guy Raz, um, uh, for sure. Alex from from uh, Gimlet does an amazing job of that. Uh, I'm a big Freakonomics fan. Uh, I think uh, Levitt does a great job of asking questions, particularly the less produced versions of those podcasts when he's just sitting down and inter- when he does kind of his off script episodes where he just publishes the full interview of when he sat down with somebody. I, you know, for me, those are really powerful. I like, uh, honestly, I, I kind of like watching fireside chats at conferences, mm. which are normally awful to listen to because everybody's talking in the background. But if you can really hone in on like the questions that are getting asked, uh, in a lot of cases, I'm always amazed that they can get uh, somebody to open up in a way in front of a room full of people. This is a much more intimate format, right? Like you are much more likely to get me to say something stupid because it's <laughs> just the two of us in a tiny room. Yeah, and you uh, haven't you haven't said one dumb thing yet. Yeah, I know. I'm working uh, on it. Versus uh versus me in front of 50 people, yeah. suddenly I'm going to be on my best behavior. I'm going to pause longer, think twice before I say something. I'm going to try to say folks instead of guys. I'm going to try to, you know, like I'm, I'm real-time editing right. for maximum effect. And I, I feel like with podcasts, it's much easier to slip into yourself and, and just uh, eventually you you forget that there's a microphone there if you're doing it well. Right. And when you're doing camera work, it's a little more intimidating because you've got all the lights and a huge group of people around you. I think that's just a little more scary. I think this is more like having cocktails, even if it's in the morning, chatting with a friend and talking about things that other people might really be curious about. So I wanted to share a couple of interviewers that I really admire. So first, first is Oprah. Been a fan of Oprah since you know, I was a kid. And she does a program called Super Soul Sunday, where she brings on a lot of CEOs, and they go deep and they go fast. And I'm pretty sure it's because they are at her house in Maui, sitting on the most beautiful grove and just contemplating life and experiences. And one of the things that I think is interesting about Oprah is how good she is at getting people to share, but I find that she doesn't share so much about herself. She'll acknowledge what the other person said, but she's not really sharing with you. Whereas an interviewer like Mark Marin, who is a comedian, who I've seen down in Bloomington at the Comedy Attic several times, 
is brilliant at sharing himself and his problem. So he'll ask somebody and then he'll be like, yeah, let me tell you what happened to me. And I swear to God, I've got people around me who are very close that have worked out some major psychological issues because Mark is working them out with the people he's interviewing. Yeah. And then my third favorite interviewer is Terry Gross on NPR. And she interviewed Reese Witherspoon yesterday. And they were talking about some of the things going on in Hollywood related to Time's Up. And I didn't know this, but apparently Reese had had some experiences with some bad behavior with some of her male colleagues. And Terry asked her about them. And I could tell that Reese, who's just, you know, a consummate professional, handled it really well in the moment, but didn't really want to talk about that when there were, she's doing so many things right now. She's got a new talk show. She has a new TV show on Apple TV. But Terry then said, well, was there anything I asked you today that I shouldn't have asked or should have asked differently? And Reese said, well, I think it would have been helpful to me if you would have shared with me before the interview that you were going to ask me about these things. And I was like, one, I love that Reese was, she was honest with yeah, her. Yeah, just gave the feedback. Yeah. yeah. But two, I love that Terry asked. And I think one of the things, I, I have a, a number of minority women that work with the startup ladies, and we've talked about Terry Gross before. Uh, and we were talking about when she was interviewing Izzo, and, or Lizzo, I'm sorry. And they said, sometimes... Terry's a little bit of, of frustration for them as a white female. She doesn't understand the experience of women of color and or people of color. So when she interviews them, she doesn't have enough experience or history to ask the types of questions that would be meaningful to them versus you and I are both in the tech space. We both understand things. We can laugh at the same things. And she doesn't have those things. But then you think, you know, an interviewer has a tough job. Because sure, you're talking to lots of people in the tech space. Of course, you've had a lot of shared experiences. But then there are going to be some things that you actually hope you you trip over in a conversation so you can talk about them and learn. So I think being an interviewer is really tough, right? Because sure, you want to talk about the commonalities, but you really want to explore some of the new things that you don't know about yeah. that person. Tim Ferriss, who I should have mentioned before, I listen to all the Tim Ferriss podcasts. He's a master interviewer. He he talks about creating safety. And one of the reasons he does a long form podcast that goes, you know, anywhere from an hour to three hours is he's constantly struggling to establish safety early on where he the, the person eventually feels comfortable enough to be vulnerable and to push back and to ask him questions and, uh, you know, like uh, any, you know, he's talked about this a lot and it's always a delicate read and like, how do you know that you've got it? How do you know when you've lost it? How do you know all that kind of stuff? But it's super interesting to hear him talk about the, some of the techniques that he's developed to do that where like, if I ask you a very difficult, what I believe is going to be a very difficult question, yeah, I will ask it of you. And then to buy you time to think about it rather than just making you feel pressure because of awkward silence, I'll say, let me give you an example of where I've experienced that or where I've struggled right, with that. And right. then he'll start talking yes. to, to basically buy the other person 60 seconds to, right. to, to think of their answer. Their yeah. yeah. It, it's, I, so I love, I think he does a good job of both doing it and then editorializing it uh, in certain episodes. Yeah. I think another expert is Joshua Johnson on 1A. Oh, I don't know him. Oh, gosh, he's good. He's he's just fun. He's smart. And when someone says something that he either doesn't agree with or let's say there's an alternate opinion about it, I mean, he 
he respectfully and professionally comes back and, and asks them to evaluate different information. And I love that about him. But he shared that that was one of the things he did too when somebody is like, oh, well, and kind of makes the face like, oh gosh, I'm not prepared for that. He does the same thing, gives them a couple of seconds to compose their thoughts and then tell their story. So that that makes me want to ask, you have a podcast with your son yes, about the farm. Yes. So farm is one of how many companies that you're running? Uh, the farm doesn't necessarily count as a company. Oh, that's just uh, a side hustle too. So two official side hustles and how many companies do you run? A uh, number. A number. Okay. Yeah. Probably you'd have to write them out to count them. I, I know don't. It's a lot. So, so there's two answers to that. Okay. Uh, there's a number of them and then there's none of them. I don't run any of them. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, we have a phenomenal team. Each one of those companies has an amazing leader who pushes them forward and it's their full-time job to focus on scaling and growing that company. And thankfully for most of them, that's not me. With Patrick, we started a farm a number of years ago. Uh, my wife and I, when we got pat- pregnant with Patrick, we moved out in the country and decided we would turn this uh, uh, house into a, into a farm. And the whole idea there was to be a good dad, to create a space where I'm, so I'm a workaholic. I'm, uh, I, I, can't stand watching TV for hours on end. It's a struggle for me to get through an entire NFL game. And I like the NFL. Like, I, I just can't sit there. I'd much rather be outside working on something with headphones and listening to a game because uh, I can be physically doing something. So what do you think that's about? Uh, no, there's like we could lay down on the couch here and like you could you could dissect that <laughs> for hours. I am totally broken. When I, like it is. a Yes, that's a real problem. So the farm was kind of a forcing function to say. If I'm going to be working, I probably should create space where I'm not working on stuff that my kids can't be engaged in, like writing code or developing a pro forma or, you know, no matter how exciting I think Excel is, my four-year-old's not going to think it's exciting. Right. So the farm became a space where I could do work that I felt was meaningful and is uh, energizing to me. It's energizing in a different way. Swinging a hammer is not the same as working on a laptop, but I could be doing it with them. So that was kind of the theory worked out phenomenally well. And then the podcast is a little bit of an extension of that where I ask myself the question, how could I train myself and my son to create space on a regular basis to sit down and talk to one another? Not knowing that right now when he's nine, it's, you know, with a microphone in front of us, it's not going to be the same conversation as when he's maybe 13, but that we've developed a ritual and a habit where we know that roughly once a week, once every other week, we're going to sit down together, spend that time together and talk to one another. And eventually maybe we'll get rid of the microphones and talk about things like, you know, girls and ethics and things that, you know, things that you may not want to talk about on the microphone, but, but he and I have that ritual. That to me, it's just building its practice. I, I, you came in here ridiculously well prepared. You read a number of my old blog posts. One of my favorite posts that I ever wrote years ago was on practice and how as uh, white collar professionals, we don't practice. NBA players practice, any sports player practices, right? There's yes. many first responders practice, right? Firefighters do controlled burns. Police members practice tense situations constantly, but we don't. We don't practice deploying code. We don't practice, in many cases, we don't do we don't do near enough practice of crucial conversations, giving people difficult feedback, firing somebody, any number of things. And so when you think about that, if you think about your job on a daily basis and you step back and you start to ask yourself, how could I practice that? Like, what would practicing that even look like mm. to where I could be purposeful in trying to develop skills that would make me better when the moment counted? 
the podcast with my son is that. It's how can I be purposeful in developing skills that maybe later in life when we're probably he's probably not going to want to talk to me about certain things. <laughs> we've created a set of rituals that make it more likely that it's going to happen. That is brilliant. That That's what, when you post the notes for this podcast, I think you really should pull out the piece about once you're a white collar, senior level professional, creating opportunities that allow you to practice so you can be really good for yourself and whoever it is that you're working with in the future. And to me, it sounds like you're creating a space that you really look forward to. Yeah, with it's Patrick. super positive. Right. I love that. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. How did you decide podcasting was the medium that you wanted to connect with people on? Because you were a solo writer before. It was just you and then you were collecting some feedback. Yeah. And then was it from blog to this or was there something in between? It was blog to nothing for years. Okay. Uh, and then to this. I, I, you know, I still strongly prefer, I do my best thinking while writing. Uh, I am not articulate on the fly. That's not true. Uh, yeah, oh, I'm fine, but I'm not, uh, my, I'm not going to come up with a deep insight while we're just You riffing. just did. I said you have to call it out in your notes. That that was really good. Thank you. Yeah. I I will create a much better, much better articulated argument and or thread of insight uh, by writing it down and kind of testing it and going back and refining it than I will by just talking now after I've done that work. And and then you ask me the question that I can I, it's in it's in my head. Right. So I've, I've done all the hard work of thinking it through. For me, that is a, it is a great way for me to solve problems. I almost always have to write them down. Uh, and, and I have hundreds of emails to myself of me, you know, writing my thought process for how I, I'm thinking about a thing. Uh, and I have lots of notebooks that I carry around with me where I write that stuff down. So I still, you know, the, the blog back in the old days was, was my way of doing that. I think this medium is a little bit lazier and that it's a lot easier to produce content here. When you write something, there's an editing process, there's a reflecting process, there's a, you know, like, there's multiple stages. And I'm not saying there's not an editing product process to podcast, but you can't really restructure a podcast, yeah. at, at least not an interview podcast in the same way that right. you can a blog post. You know, ta Coates, who uh, was the person who adapted Black Panthers to to film and has a new book out, and I'm. it's something about water. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name, but he came to Clues Hall this year, and he talked about his relationship with his editor. And first of all, when he speaks, he's someone who has the ability to recall the exact word he wants to use in the moment, and he speaks with a rhythm that is melodic. He is someone who I could listen to eyes shut for hours. And he was talking about 
when he submits something, whether it's for a script or a book and how the editor, I think the first time he was working on a big project, the editor sent him a very long email and he was like, that was tough to deal with. And then the second time it was a series of phone calls and it was very personal. But the last one for, I think it was his most recent book. He saw his editor one day after work uh, pull up to his house and he's walking up the driveway and ta is just like, oh no, this is not good for me. So the editor comes in and says, hey, you know, you're, you're working in the right direction here. However, you know, made a lot of notes as far as how he needed to pivot to get to the audience he wanted to get to. And this editor clearly has been a great asset to him. So, you know, he believes him. He's, he's doing the best work. But working with an editor is, is challenging. I do that too. I, I have a column for the Indianapolis Business Journal and I send it to I, my husband is a an academic. I send it to him first. He's my toughest critic. But when you get that feedback, of course, that person is they're they're your biggest cheerleader. They're also going to give you a lot of criticism so you can make it better for the reader. And you have to learn how to take that criticism and then write something that is really going to, whether it's teach someone, inspire someone. Or what, what are some of the other reasons that you write and, and do podcasts? I mean, most of them are selfish. <laughs> you want to learn. For me. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I want to learn. Yeah. I, I really enjoy when somebody's willing to give me the gift of their time that I can sit down. You know, Jason Becker's been on the podcast twice, right? And they're two of my favorite episodes for a couple of reasons. One, he's struggling with some of the same things I'm struggling with. Well, actually, seems like he's not struggling with them <laughs> in the same way that I'm struggling with them, which is why I want to talk more with them. And, you know, just like, what's it like to, to be involved in multiple companies at one time and how do you balance that? And uh, how do you build a, a sustaining team that you can you can leverage across different opportunities? And, uh, you know, some of those things resonate with me where, I mean, the gift of his time where I can I can just go in there and get out of that what I want. And then it's recorded, so I can, can listen to it, to it weeks later if right. I need to. It's just amazing. And the fact that that could also be helpful for someone else is fantastic, right? It works well. Yeah, it works well. And, you know, this is also uh, in support, even though it's uh, failed, in support of a product <laughs> uh, from a marketing perspective. It's not that good at doing the marketing, but uh, but it, it's okay, right? And, you know, I want to get better at podcasting. And, and a lot of things, I'm a big believer that time in the saddle the 10,000 hours, right? Mm -hmm. Like that time in the saddle is the biggest teacher. You want to get better at martial arts? Be on a mat. You want to get better at podcasting? Get in front of a microphone. You want to be better at writing? Write. You want to be better at painting? Paint. Like taking classes, finding mentors, finding teachers, all of that will help. But the number one driver of your ability to learn is time spent doing the thing. Right. How much time have you spent doing martial arts? Uh, all of it. <laughs> so you're uh, a black belt. Uh, I am a black belt in Aikido and I'm working uh, on now I'm working on judo. Uh, I've spent a little time, a little bit of time with Taekwondo and boxing. Um, How long does it take to become a black belt? It depends on the art, on the school. Okay. Uh, it's all different, whether it's a commercial dojo, a non-commercial dojo. Uh, What's the, a range? The instructor. I would say uh, it could take you anywhere from five years to, to 10 years, five to 10 years. And how during the year, how much time are you spending in a month? Yeah, all of it, every day. So you might spend. So when I was when I was working towards my black belt, I would try to be there five days a week if I could. 
for an hour? For an hour and a half, hour, hour and a half. That's a commitment. Um, plus listening, reading books about it, listening to podcasts about it, watching hours of YouTube videos at night about it. I'm actually lucky that I can process things visually and translate that into, into fine motor movement. Mm, that is a talent. And I, I, I know that I'm lucky that I can do that. Not a lot of people can do that. Kids actually can do that. They, they, this is an interesting thing. I learned this uh, through martial arts. When you're teaching martial arts to a kid, mm-hmm. they, they tell you that you are supposed to visually demonstrate that thing five to ten times before you have the children do it. This is think, think five-year-olds, six-year-olds. So if, uh, if we had my kids here uh, and I wanted to teach them how to throw you, then I would have to throw you five to, to ten times. Wow. And the kids would just watch. And then you can have the kids do it. When you're teaching adults, they tell you to do it the complete opposite. Show it once and then get the adults off their butt and doing it. Because they're, most adults have lost the ability to, to learn visually. And most adults are going to be um, more successful learning that type of thing by doing it and failing and learning, you know, and getting corrected and, and bruised. Yep. And bruised, lots of bruises Yeah, and doing it. And so uh, that, that was super interesting when I learned that. I learned that earlier this year, uh, reading a, 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 an instructor's book on how to teach martial arts. And, and it, you know, there's some things that I took away from that and that like, you know, one of my gifts is my, is my ability when I, I'm injured a lot. Uh, and so, <laughs> Uh, when I'm sitting, I'll, many times when I'm injured, I still try to, if I can, I'll still try to go to the dojo and, and be present, partly because that's what you're, you do as part of a community, but uh, also because I can still learn a lot from that. And I'm really amazed sometimes how I can watch something that I've done a thousand times and see somebody else do it who's better, you know, who's better than me, more skilled than me. And I can still pick up this little nuance that, that I know if I had done it, a thousand more times, I wouldn't have developed that nuance yeah. had I not seen it. So I have to ask you, so you're in a martial arts class and I understand how doing this with extreme discipline, it prepares you for bigger issues that yeah. come to you in life. You're like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. But this desire of wanting to have, I'm guessing, fists and legs thrust at your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me the why behind that. Why Why did you choose going into martial arts and then rising so high within the ranks? I'd like to say it was well thought out. I, um, I herniated a couple of discs in my back years ago, seven, seven years ago now maybe. I'm bad with time once it gets more than a couple of years out. As part of my recovery for that, talking with my doctor, uh, I, you know, what I, what I noticed was movement was good. And in talking with him, I was like, hey, you know, I've been thinking about maybe trying a martial art. I did it. I did martial. I did um, Taekwondo in college for years. I, you know, a big part of that discipline is you just you get on the mat, you stretch to warm up for like 20, 30 minutes. And then you have these, these full body movements. They're, they're complex, complete movements, not like um, strength training in a gym where you're doing isolated movements, but um, more like CrossFit, but without ridiculous amounts of weight. But they're functional movements or high quality movements. And uh, in talking with my doctor, I was like, hey, what if I found a, a, a martial art and started doing that again? And he was like, yes, that would be amazing. That would be really good for you. Not swimming or walking. Uh, he might have also said those things. I'm not going <laughs> to do that. But martial uh, yeah, arts. Because that's arts. good for backs. Yeah, that's good for backs. <laughs> um, so I started going to this dojo that is close to the office. I randomly fell into Japanese martial arts uh, only, only because of proximity. Started doing it. And I would tell you the biggest takeaway I had. So martial arts is one phenomenally humbling. Hmm. If you have any ego at all, you will not survive 
in martial arts, there is always a bigger fish. You are, you are always going to lose. Like yeah. even even the best, right? Like it's uh, you know sometimes somebody can get lucky. Uh, more often than not, you just make a mistake, and it's a chess game, right? And you make a mistake, and the other person gets advantage, and, and you've now lost. So one, it's incredibly humbling, which uh, I can certainly use in my life uh, more. I think all of us can. So that's a that's an immediate side benefit that you get when you start martial arts and you have no idea what you're doing. Two, it also for me, I have had a life of anger management issues. Oh, damn. Me too. And it, that helps with it. It, um, it helps, but not in the way that most people think. Most people think like, yeah, hitting a heavy bag, that's going to help with anger management. And it does. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, I like to punch some guys every now and then. And it, that does help. But it, it's more than that. It, when you're fighting, the whole thing that you're trying to develop is discipline around your emotions. And that you can't, it's just like uh, if you're in um, the military or if you're a police officer, it's about how do you stay calm in conflict? Because if you're not calm, you make mistakes, right? right? Uh, you unload your clip on a, on a felon instead of, or a suspected felon instead of maybe not even shooting, maybe only shooting once for effect, maybe only, you know, like that, that the difference in you and your tenseness is going to come out in that situation. And so the number one thing you're trying to learn in advanced martial arts, once you've got the basic movements, the rest of it is how to control your emotions, stay calm, stay relaxed, make natural fluid movements when everything around you is telling you not to do that. When somebody is swinging a sword at your head and you're supposed to respond to that, you can't tense up. If you tense up, you're going to get hit in the head with, with that sword or that, with that stick or with a fist. Instead, if you're relaxed and you're calm and you, you're thinking, you're breathing, then you'll deal with that conflict. Turns out that skill translates 100% into a tense meeting, into a boardroom, into a disagreement with Michael Corrin about the direction of the company, into a situation where Julie DeSutter is giving me feedback that I don't want to hear because it hurts because I have a big ego and I don't want to hear that I might be doing something wrong and I can choose to breathe and be calm and relaxed and actually receive that feedback and try my best to respond to it positively in the moment. Or I can be an idiot and get defensive. And, and I, and I do both of these, by the way. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not like, I'm not perfect. Sometimes I'm an idiot. And in my better moments, I'm exercising the discipline that I learned through martial arts. So for me, I kind of got addicted to that piece of it. I very much recognized over the last seven years that I've become better as a husband, as a father, as a coworker. I'm in much more control of my emotions. I'm uh, much more in control of my breathing and the way that I enter a space mm. uh, so that I'm ready to engage in the way on my terms in the way that I want to. I'm not reacting to what the other person has set up. That's incredible. And it connects to what you said earlier about the importance of practice, having that time and space so that in the future you the skill that you've developed. Yeah, I'm talking to my therapist right now about anger. I went into a pitch with a room full of what I would call vest vibes, the look of very privileged men in plaid shirts with the vests. And uh, something happened to me that happened to one of our startup ladies earlier in the year. She happens to be a woman of color and she was pitching and and she her company is focused on addressing an issue of oppression 
amidst a minority community. I love the product. I love her. And she has been critiqued for coming across angry. And so people have worked with her and she has change the way she presents. And I'll be damned if I don't show up, we're both presenting at the same thing. And I'm getting full on best vibes. And all of a sudden, I had everything planned. I had the deck ready to go. And I'm looking at a couple of these people who have reminded me so much of people who have oppressed or abused me. These people are probably lovely people that have done nothing wrong. But in my head, I got angry. And it's it's me. I'm the problem. Right. But I let it affect my pitch. And I was like, and even during the pitch, I'm like, I'm angry. And I'm like, stop being angry. Like you're, you're not coming across the way you usually do. And then, then you're angry at yourself for doing that. Right. But I couldn't control myself. I was like, these best vibes are like, they're, they're messing with my head. So of course, you know, I talked to my advisors and I'm like, don't worry. I'm going to therapy. We're going to work this out. But I can't help it sometimes. Yeah. Like there are, there are some people you meet that represent people who have been cruel to you. And just that wall goes up instantly, right? But I love the idea that you may have dealt with a little bit of that too, it sounds like. Maybe some kind of something, different kind of anger. Your uh, brand of anger. I, I I just, I'm an angry person. <laughs> there's there's so many good reasons to be angry. Yeah. You know the scene in uh, uh, The Avengers where uh, I, th- I think it's Tony Stark asks the Hulk, um, the guy who plays the Hulk, like, how do you get yourself to be angry? Yeah. To turn into the Hulk. And his response back is, that's the secret. I'm always angry. (laughs) That's me. I'm always wound up about something, right? I'm always angry. Totally relate. Well, you know, it kind of makes me wonder, like all the people we know and work with, like, I wonder who else, you know, is a little bit angry. We actually have a a program with Startup Ladies called uh, Mental Wellness for Entrepreneurs. And the last program we did was on the issue of resentment. And a series of things happened to all of us. And Sometimes you have the person who either works with you, for you, or there's power above you. And something happens to damage the trust. And then all of a sudden there's a chasm and the chasm keeps building and then you start to resent them. And yet, depending on how that balance of power works out, you still have to continue working with them. But yet trust has been broken and now you don't really like that person so much anymore. How the heck do you manage that? So we had a great conversation about it. And I, I don't have the answers yet. I, I'm just beginning to work on this. Yeah. But it, that is a very real issue that every corporation deals with. But we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. We'll talk about how people need to manage conflict, but we almost talk about it in a way that in a meeting, if you and I have different ideas, how do we how do we each explain our perspective and the why behind it? And then can we agree to terms where we decide on something and, and try to propel the relation for, forward? That's that's a good way to manage conflict in a meeting, but it doesn't address the icky stuff, right? The weirdness between people, the somebody did something to somebody, and maybe it wasn't even that significant, but it changed the way that person thought about them. I mean, we're not doing that kind of training. And I think that's why corporate cultures suffer so much. And and then you really don't get to be yourself, right? You Somebody may experience the angry version of you or the, the in my case at that pitch, it was it was definitely the, you know, like I'd say the me too version of you, right? Like I'm angry because you guys have done stuff to me and it's not fair that you're here and I'm here and silliness, right? Like it's, that's not fair, but it is hard when you, when you have to deal with those things. So I think that what really helps is podcasts like this, where you open up a little bit and you talk about some of those things and people may not have to expose themselves, but just by virtue of hearing 
how somebody else has experienced it and then figured out, hey, there are ways, whether it's working with a therapist, couldn't be a bigger advocate of working with a therapist, finding some type of discipline that allows you to practice, to harness the anger you have and then be reflective so that in the future you go into a space and you're better prepared. I mean, I think those are like some of the greatest lessons from this conversation. One of the things I I wanted to ask you about, which has been on my mind as you've been talking about your blog and some of the things that you've posted before are one of the articles that you wrote about destination thinking. Because it's it sounds to me that you were using destination thinking when you chose the podcast, when you chose the martial arts practice. And a lot of women in particular that I work with operate from the survival thinking mode. We just need to get over this next hurdle. We just need to get to that next date. So can you, in fact, I want to read something that you wrote here. Oh my. I thought it was really good. Uh, So it says, work backwards from a destination. Given, when, then way of thinking about a problem. You start from point zero, then advance to the destination. Lately, I found it helpful to instead start from the destination and then work backwards from there to think of all the different ways that I could end up there. How has that way of thinking helped you be a better human, a better CEO, a better dad? So I'm going to I'll take the low-hanging fruit first. Let's say you are thinking about launching a startup and you are trying to develop. There's two kinds of pitches, right? So there's, so we're, we're, I'm helping with fundraising for one of our startups right now. And we're in talks with an investor who's, who I think will take down the entire round, which would be amazing. Yay. And there's two types of conversations with that investor, right? There's the classic pitch deck conversation, which is, why is this a good investment? And why is this a good investment has a lot more to do with what's the total market opportunity? Is this real pain that the market is feeling that you can solve? Is it defensible? Is there a bunch of competition in the space? What is there a real exit for this? What's the financial return going to be? And do I believe in this team? Mm-hmm. That's a that's that's a pitch deck pitch. And what you're really trying to do in a pitch deck pitch is paint this picture to the promised land that do you believe that me and the team that I've assembled can solve this problem in a big enough way and that it's a big enough problem that people will pay for it that we can get this kind of return, assuming it's a standard um, for-profit pitch. Now, there's a dichotomy there because while that's one thing, there's this whole other thing that's, that happens the second you land that, which is, okay, what does next year look like? And it's easy. It is really easy. You can give me almost any startup idea. And I've learned from Michael uh, Clorin well enough to, to weave a way to turn that into a big idea that can be worth millions of dollars 20 years from now, mm-hmm. right? Like that's easy. It is actually really easy to Okay. Now, make it tangible. So what does next year look like? If you put together a business plan for this startup for next year, who are you hiring? How are you marketing? How is that going to, like, what's your cost of customer acquisition during that first year? Not your cost of customer acquisition at scale when you've got all these market effects in your favor and you're the industry leader and you're clearly making money. But, like, what does it look like tomorrow? It's going to be expensive. Yeah, it's going to be expensive. 
where are you going to spend that money? There's 16 places you could do marketing. Which of the 16, and you can't do them all. Which of the 16 are you going to do? Who are the, for you need to hire seven people. You can only afford to hire three. Who are the three you're going to hire? What are their skill sets? When you go down to this immediate, like, what do I do next? Which is incredibly paralyzing. It's just like writer's block. Yes. It gets, and I'm, I do like, this is hard for me too. The way that I unlock that is I say, what does the end of the first year need to look like? I've got this big vision, which is nebulous and uh, inspiring. And by whatever metric you're, you're inspired. So maybe we're solving a social problem. Maybe we're going to make a lot of money. Maybe we're going to, whatever, uh, whatever is inspiring. That's the big pitch. But when you go back and you say, okay, what's my next step? For me, the easiest way to do that is say, for me to know that I'm successful moving down that path, what would I need to see as signs of success at the end of the first year. And if I didn't see those, I would second guess, maybe this isn't the right problem. Maybe I'm not the right person to solve it. Maybe we've approached it in the wrong way, right? But, it, but, but if I don't see these things, I'm going to step back and say, okay, something's going wrong. Right. So for me, th- this is, again, low-hanging fruit. That, that's where I start. So I would say, okay, a year from now, what would I want to see as um, – that, that would tell me that I'm on the right path. And now I'm going to work backwards from that because a year, it, while it's a it's big, it, it's not as big as you think. Years, years go by really quick. And so I can start to, it gives me this like little bite of the elephant that I can start to break down into quarters and then months and then weeks and days. And okay, now I know what I need to do tomorrow t- to make traction. That, that, so that's a, that's a simple version. Now back up and say, as a, so I've been married almost 20 years. Uh, my wife and I waited 10 years before we had our first kid, which I think was a great idea. But in those 10 years that I was married, but we didn't have kids, I got to see a lot of parent-child relationships. And I got to see the ones that I was really envious of. Mm. And I thought, man, like that, what, what I'm seeing right there with Karen and Sarah, I want that to be me and my kids. Like that is a unbelievably helpful believably healthy relationship. That's not the relationship I had with my parents. Like, I, I want that. What were you seeing? Uh, uh, I saw kids that would talk to their parents about real issues. I saw kids that would approach their parents, teenagers who would ask their parents for advice. Hmm. How often does that happen? Uncommon. I saw parents who knew when to shut their mouth and not give advice. That just, uh, just really healthy debate and respect and 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 they're like any humans they fought of course but like but like in the bright ways they would apologize they would you know in the same way you and I would if we fought you know in the bigger picture as the, as soon as we had our first child i started thinking about those things that i saw that i wanted and saying what would i have to do as a as a father to create those outcomes if that's what i want what are the what are the things i need to do to to manifest that and it's the exact same process. So I can't, I can't solve when my kid is four. I can't solve uh, how do they come to me for advice when they're sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I can do is I can I can do small things like ensure that my kid feels safe around me, that they feel like they're loved, even when I'm not at my best moments. They know that they're that they're always going to be safe. So how would you do that? What are the things that you would do? What are the outward signs you could do to show a kid that? Well, you you hug them in a, an extreme amount. You you tell them things 
that uh, reflect what you're thinking and feeling so they get used to that so they so that they know they can expect that you know one of the things I try really hard to do is not present I, I tell my kids when I'm disappointed in them and I tell them when I'm proud of them yeah. and I tell them you know like I try to be really vocal about what I'm feeling and seeing and because I always want them to know like I don't want them to be thinking is dad disappointing me? Like my, my kids are not worried about whether or not I'm disappointed in them. <laughs> they know. They're, they're, they're not guessing. Yeah. Like they're not telling, they're not running a script in their head right. of, uh, they, like I know there's never going to be a time where my kids can be secretly thinking dad doesn't want to talk to me. Resentment is going to be happening because dad doesn't want to talk. Like he's going to know. And then they know. develop a shame cycle because yeah. they're not sure. Yeah, he's going to know. Yeah, <laughs> like, dad's it, pissed. Yeah, dad's pissed. We got to do something uh, here. Like, and even, even in that, it's okay. Like- my my son and I built a bunk bed when he was six or seven. We built mm. a bunk bed, and uh, man, you want you want patience uh, build a bunk bed <laughs> with a six year old. And not even IKEA, I'm guessing. No, this no, was no. just like scrap we wood or went something. Went out and got the lumber yeah. and and did it. You know, in that we we got about an hour into it, and uh, you know he's got this uh, behavior where when he gets stressed. It's, he just gets, it's a positive feedback loop now. He gets more stress, like stress begets stress. And so he just gets wound up yeah, and becomes a little bit spastic, stops thinking, all the gears grind to a halt, mm. like, and makes really bad choices. Uh, and then I'm, I'm the opposite way, not with stress, but with anger. Like once I get anger, angry, it becomes a positive feedback loop in the wrong direction. So about an hour into that project, I was like, okay, stop. We're going to develop a shorthand here. I'm being an idiot. I just yelled at you for like dropping a screw, right? Like, guess what? You're six. You're allowed to drop screws. It's cool. I, I drop screws and I'm not six. Turns out my expectations of you are completely unrealistic. So we're going to develop a code word for me, which is uh, you're allowed to call me a butthead. So if you see me getting angry, which you're going to see before I do, yeah, you're allowed to say, dad, stop being a butthead. Yeah. And I, I promise you, I will immediately... Stop, check myself, get control, create a safe space. You are free to do that anytime you want in this process. Now I'm going to have one for you too. I'm going to say, Patrick, stop being a spaz. And when I do that, you need to step away and you need to focus on your breathing. We have breathing exercises that we do. So he, he knows exactly what to do when I say that. Uh, and you need to focus on your breathing and, and, and get control and, and calm down. How's that sound? Great. He called me about head seven times that day. It worked perfectly. I'm surprised only seven times. Yeah. How many uh, times did you call him a spaz? Only a couple. Uh, but it immediately created an environment where we both felt happier and yeah. safer. We played music. We had a great time. And it, it immediately became a positive. Mm. Um, that lasted a couple of weekends, right? Like, as you, yeah. know, you know, build a, a bunk bed in a day. And it was just it like those sm- figuring out those small things. It, all of that starts with. How do I want this relationship with my kid to be? Do I, like, it's the end game. Not how do I want it today when he's six, but what do I want it to be when he's 16, when he's 26, when he's 40? I own half of that, obviously. Um, but what, what are the things I can be doing right now that will set us up for a different relationship down the road? So that's destination yeah. thinking. That's you know, where is it you're trying to go and how do you start to build this avalanche of small practices and decisions that will push uh, with this ever compounding force, hmm. the outcome that you want? Do you think you were ever a survival type of thinker? I mean, we all get into that mode 
occasionally, right? Depending on the situation and where you're at and when you don't think you have options. I suffer with depression occasionally. I'm on a good run right now, but I occasionally suffer with depression and in my worst times, I mean, of course, like there's, you don't feel like there's options. You don't like optionality is not a thing that exists. You don't feel like you feel trapped. You, you like any of the things that you don't feel like there's people you can talk to. You don't feel like you feel like you have to carry it all. That's survival mode. Right. And we all, everybody gets there. Um, you know, but it's knowing there's another way to process and think through what, you ultimately want to do and and develop the tool set so you can do it. Yeah. I, I wish more humans and, and teachers would teach that because I think if you come from a family where you live more in the survivalist mentality, research has proven that neural pathways develop so that you're not very good at thinking far out into the distance. And that means you may not be as good as forecasting consequences. I think that one, just understanding that those are two ways of processing who you want to be. And you can dive deeper into this destination thinking if you want to. What, one thing I wanted to pick up on um, that you were talking about, the, the shorthand that you developed with your son when you were yeah. building the bunk bed. Uh, in some of your earlier writings, you wrote about heuristics, yeah. which are essentially a shorthand, yeah, right? Totally. And one of the things, since we're both in the tech space, I, I know I'm incredibly interested about, and I'm wondering if you are too, but it's how our our engineers are building artificial intelligence in ways to really replicate humans. So did you watch Battlestar Galactica? Actually, this is uh, this is a place where, and I'm normally a pretty pretty big sci-fi fantasy geek. You didn't did, see this one. I did not. Okay. I did not watch Battlestar Galactica at all. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have yes. watched uh, Battlestar. And I think what's interesting about heuristics and, and Battlestar is ultimately they there were, you know, carbon-based humans that developed these non-organic computers. And ultimately, you know, that we fuse them together. I, I personally think we're just organic computers. We're carbon-based computers as is. However... We as humans are are developing this kind of next version of machines who ultimately could become humans, right? But what I think so interesting about and have you played with some of the chatbots online? Yeah. yeah, they're they're not the brightest bots. No, yet we've got a long way to go. And so a lot of people say that when you're developing algorithms for AI, it's all about probability. And I, I challenge that. I wonder about that. Because when you think of an example of heuristics, the, just the shorthand you have with someone, how do you program for that? When on the fly, you made that up with your son. Is that something that you can code? Is that something that you program an AI to learn over time? What are your thoughts about that? My first thought is I'm woefully unprepared to to, to talk about artificial intelligence <laughs> in any deep, meaningful way. Not not because I didn't prepare for this, but it's, it's just not it's just not my jam. Uh, there are people yeah. way, way, way smarter than me about that stuff. I'm a voyeur of uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence and all the all the things that are happening. Like I'm super interested in it, but it's not. I've never done it. I've never implemented it. I've yeah. never. You know, I know the potential. I think I think I know the potential, but um, but it's not something I have hands-on experience doing. That's my disclaimer. But I do think when you look at um, made-up statistic, if you look at half of the 
things that we call artificial intelligence in the computing world today. They're just heuristics that have been coded. It's a rules engine behind the scene, right? Uh, when this occurs, do this. Yeah. And because you have thousands of rules, it looks like artificial intelligence because it's what we do as humans, right? Yeah. You don't think about the complexity of driving a car and, and go back in your mind to when you were first learning how to drive a car. Yikes. And all of the things you needed to process. And now today, you might have driven here to do this with me, and you may not even remember how you right. got It's just here. an extension of your body. Yeah. Yeah. You just do it. Yeah. Right? How do you know when to check for get, whether or not you have enough gas? I don't – I go days without looking at my gas gauge, right? Yeah. How do you know when to and, – and this is the amazing thing about the human experience. We – once we've done a thing multiple times, we develop these little heuristics that serve us. 98% of the time, right? right? Most heuristics work most of the time. That's what makes them heuristic. If they worked all the time, they would be a law, not right. a heuristic. True. And so that's what rules engines are incredibly good at mimicking. And so when you see a bunch of rules being fired off against a data set, it can look incredibly artificially intelligent because that's what humans do. Yeah. But it's not intelligent in the way that I think you were trying to get to in your question of like, there's nuance to intelligence, right? right? So yes, I have those rules, but maybe I can fire off some nuance, like um, the difference between knowing I'm long gas, so I'm immediately going to pull over to the nearest gas station, or I'm long gas and I know that I'm going to this final destination and there's a more optimal gas station for me to get to 10 miles from now. And so I'm going to stop at the, that gas station. Right. That is a nuance where, which a rules engine today probably can't get to. There's a question I, I suspect in the future, a rules engine could really easily get to that once you get enough data points into the system. And I think the great evolution in what looks like and feels like artificial intelligence today is the fact that we have a glut of data that we can feed into these engines um, where they just look like they're getting smarter and smarter and smarter, but you just fed them so much more, uh, just such as a more complete picture of the world that they can they can make better decisions, right? Yeah. You've given them more more data to do that, and you know, and then you can get into like what does it mean to have a learning algorithm, and how would the algorithm change over time based on the the results of the past decision, you know, things like that, and, and so you know that stuff gets a lot more interesting, but even a lot of that still looks a lot like a rules engine behind the scenes. Right. Or you're just changing the rules. Yeah. Right. So you haven't had a startup come in and say, I want to build consciousness. Had lots of them come in and talk about artificial intelligence. Yeah. And we're quick to tell them what you're calling artificial intelligence is a collaborative filtering algorithm. What you're calling Mm. artificial intelligence is a rules engine. What you're calling, like, you know, there's lots of names for these things um, that, again, there are many people who know more about this than me. That it's, it, you know, it's not really artificial intelligence. Now, there are people working towards artificial intelligence, right? Don't don't get me wrong. But that's not most of the low-hanging fruit tech that you see out in the world. And I can't help but wonder, number one, why there isn't a huge movement to get psychologists who understand brain chemistry and human behavior to integrate their studies with technology. I would think, don't you think those two would be? I think there is. Do you think that that is totally happening? But kind of small right now, don't you think? I think it's happening in a big way at the biggest companies out there. So Facebook, Google, they're doing that. Yeah. Um, You know, Uber and Lyft have economists running experiments, behavioral economists running experiments on how do I optimize tipping, right? Like they're happening, but they're they're not happening at the startup level because you can't afford it. You can't. Right? Yeah. So, but I, you know, I think the biggest companies out there are doing that. 
Um, and playing in the space. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're absolutely doing that. But I, I, you're not going to see it on the broad adoption because of, you know, a, a venture back company that's only raised $5 million. Man, you, yeah, you can't do that. You've started a business. Like, yeah, yeah I, I could hire the PhD in biology or I could go hire two Rails developers who are going to help me get, you know what I mean? It's like. Or hire a salesperson and sell the idea and get right. some contracts synced. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You got it. Yeah. Wow. So you've written about a lot of different topics. You have spoken to a lot of different people through startup competitors. What's the one idea that stayed with you and either changed you, influenced you, or puzzled you? There's a lot of them. So I'll I'll cherry pick a few of them. It is and it's really weird. I you never know why an idea stays with you. Some of the earliest podcasts I remember the most, and I don't know if that's because they were the early podcasts or because they were so profound, but, you know, I always uh, go back to Costas. The whole premise of this podcast originally was, I'm going to sit down with you, you're going to pitch me your idea, talk a little bit about traction to set some context, and then I want to talk about your competitors because it's the Startup Competitors podcast. And what I'm really interested in talking about your competitors is based on when you look at the market. How do you let that influence how you develop your product roadmap? How do you let that influence how you market your product? How do you let that influence how you sell your product? How do you let that influence everything, right? Like, because you exist in an ecosystem. Right. And Costas was, I think it was episode three, I think. And he was the first one, and this has since been repeated, but he was the first one who looked at me and said, man, Mike, I just don't think of that at all. I don't even know. I'm so focused on what my customers are telling me that it's never even occurred to me to go look at who else might be doing what I'm doing. And even if, even if they did, and I'm obviously paraphrasing, but e- even if, even if I did, I don't know that I would care because I'm most companies, I'm pretty sure Costa said this almost verbatim. Most companies are putting features in their product. I'm constantly trying to figure out which features to take out mm. to make my product simpler and more intuitive and, and to make a better user experience. And he's like, I don't think I learned that. By looking at my competitors, I can only learn that by talking to my customers. Man, what a kick-ass answer to my foil of a question, right? Like, yeah. It, it basically, he he just said, I just reject the premise of your question completely because <laughs> uh, my world doesn't work that way. Here's what I'm focused on doing. Yeah, and but I like, bet he went home and he was like Googling competitors. What nah, are you doing? I don't think he was. You don't think? Uh, no. He's I a, bet he did. He's about as an authentic dude as you can get. He's a great, he's a great human being. Well, you can um, be authentic and still understand your competitors. Oh, yeah, so you yeah. can you, be better. You can. I just don't yeah. think I, – I believed him when he's like, it's never even – Yeah. Oh, that I yeah. believe too. Yeah. Uh, you know, for for me, that that's one idea that I really was powerful. The way that he presented it was really powerful to me. And there's that's been advice of tons of people. That's kind of a Steve's job, Jobsian thing, right? Like focus on the customer and what they need, not on what everybody else is doing. Um, but I just feel like the way he articulated that was um, much more real and a little less pithy. It was it was really good. Uh, that stuck with me. There's been some uh, just r- dramatically obvious. Things that, in hindsight, when you when the when the person articulates it to you, and you're just like blown away with the simplicity and elegance of that solution. So Stephanie Cummings at uh, Please Assist Me down in Nashville, they do uh, think uh, this is a, again a gross simplification. Think Uber for maids. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a maid service for apartment buildings, and you know she to to help deal with concerns of strange people coming into your house. All of their maids wear uh, body cams. 
for the entire time that they're in your house. Hmm. So they have complete end-to-end footage of everything that is happening in front of the body, where their hands are, where they're going, what rooms they're in. If they're opening drawers, it's going to be on video, right? Like, right. So they have 100% coverage of that experience while they're in there, which you think about that in hindsight, it's like so simple from a liability hmm. and this person stole my thing. We, in fact, have footage that shows that they didn't, right? right? Uh, the thing wasn't even in there when they walked in the room, right? Like that kind of stuff. It's just, it's pretty cool. I love that, like that kind of simplicity. Uh, it's just, There's like an elegance to half of these solutions when you talk to the founder that it's like, yeah, that's not, like, that's not patentable, right? <laughs> but it, it's just like, it's so obviously simple. And you then you think of all the Uber stuff and you think of all the other places where we interact with strangers through technology. And it's like, well, Where's the Stephanie Cummings in Uber? Like, why right. isn't there, you know, like, like, why is nobody else thinking of these things, right? Like, right. Uh, like just, it's about creating safety and a better customer experience and stuff like that. You know, I think uh, DeliverEnd had some really interesting, elegant um, solutions like that and talking with them, I think, uh, you know, that, so some of those are the things that I really take away of like, man, you just said that that did not take a rocket scientist to come up with, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and there it is. And like, and it, and it, and it's just a beautiful thing that, 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 that it's that simple of a solution. So I, I, I hear a lot of those. I really am focused personally on getting better as a salesperson. Uh, and so you'll notice a number of our conversations go towards that direction. Cause I'm trying to pick at little nuggets there and, and see how people do that. And, uh, and so I, I'm constantly, amazed at the simplicity which with which people think about approaching customers or prospects and and talking them through the solution and things like that it's really affected a lot of the these startup converse, startup competitors conversations have affected the way that I think about pitching so whether that's a fundraising pitch or a sales pitch more often a sales pitch um, so yeah yeah a lot of good ideas as we wrap up here is there anything you want to share with your listeners? After 100 episodes, after many companies you have started up and led, after being a great dad, after all the influence the martial arts has had over you. To be determined if I'm a great dad. (laughs) I'll let you know in 10 years. Uh, How many episodes will that be? Like Uh, 10,000 or something? Yeah, some stupid number. So what what do you want to leave your listeners with by way of something that they can take and apply and feel like they're going to be a better founder because of it. Oh, that's heavy. I am just listened to Ryan Holiday's book, Stillness is the Key. It's a new book that he came out with. Ryan Holiday, if you've never read any of his stuff, Obstacles Away, uh, Ego is the Enemy. Uh, it, he, has, he has a couple of others. He's a modern-day stoic, also uh know, marketing genius, uh, amazing content. And stillness is the key. You know, he shared this little anecdote that if you look at the top CEOs, uh, if you look at the CEOs of the largest companies in the world, forget that I said top because that implies so much. (laughs) Um, But if you look at the CEOs of the largest companies in the world, he would say, if if you look at where they spend their time to recharge, like how do they recharge? You know, they will list things like I go cycling, I hike, I, um, you know, I, they, they do these things that are physically isolating where there's quietness around them. Even though they might be doing something physically very active or dominating, they, they're creating space for themselves to think. 
And one of the things that I've been very intentional about is I have an hour commute into work and an hour commute home because I live on a farm. And um, many people would view that as a weakness, like as a, as a disadvantage, right? You lose two hours of productivity. And my argument to that is I have, well, there's a couple arguments. One, I have buffer time. So if I ever need to, all those phone calls you never get back to, I, I have a couple hours I can do that. But, but more importantly, particularly in the morning, because I'm not calling anybody at four in the morning, on my drive in, I have white noise. I have space. I, sometimes I fill that space with podcasts and because I'm, I'm not, I don't want to listen to myself. I'm trying to be pretty intentional about creating space to, to slow down and think. It's another part of being on the mat in martial arts. When I walk into the dojo, the rest of the world gets shut out because I'm, I'm worried about you punching me in the face, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's a very, yeah. it's, it's a very visceral thing, right? Like, I, like your focus changes and the stress that you feel about making payroll and the stress that you feel about, you know, the uh, employee issue that you have to make a decision on, the stress that you feel about the f- fundraising, the stress that you feel about the customer who called with a bad experience and who's angry and all the, all the stresses that all of us deal with, that it just fades away. And you need to find things, practices in your life that get that to fade away. For me, it's martial arts and a little bit of the white space I can create during my commute. But if you don't do martial arts, that's fine. If you don't commute, that's fine. But you got to find a place where you can shut that stuff out and be reflective and do destination thinking and, and ask yourself, where am I trying to go? Is this fulfilling? In the moments where I'm depressed and I'm struggling with, I have no options and the world looks small. And I, and I ignore my immense privilege and I ignore all the awesome things happening in my life. And I think everything's going wrong, despite that I have a healthy family, despite that I have amazing partners who can operate this business, even if I'm gone for a month, despite that we, ha- you know, like despite all that stuff, I somehow can get in these places where I think life is crap and there's no way out. And maybe it would just be better if I killed myself. That happens because I've done a bad job of creating space for me to be reflective and shut out all the noise and gain perspective on the world and where I'm at within it and what's really important. And so I think being an entrepreneur is really hard and I think it's easy to fall into those traps. And I think if, if there's any advice I could, I could give somebody who is considering starting a business, which is easily going to be one of the hardest things you ever do in your life, you have to find a space for you to, quiet everything down and get that perspective. And how about a support system too? Especially when you're feeling bluesy and considering some of those really heavy thoughts you just talked about, you you need to be able to, and what's tough is when you're depressed, you don't reach out. You hope that your support system recognizes that you're closed off and they reach out to you and they poke you a little bit and say, hey, you know, we love you. We're here for you. We just want to go out and Martial arts it up with you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be fun. They wouldn't do that for me. Wouldn't that be so awesome? We we develop a startup where we all the people that you feel aggression towards, we just but we put them in a ring, and then it's a, it's like an official martial arts type of right. event, right? Wow, I think we just came up with a whole new startup yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> Insurance liability on that one's going to be fun. Yeah, well, I, we'd work through it, right? 
Well, Mike Kelly, you are an inspiration to me, to so many of your listeners, and I so appreciate all that you do and being a, a great influence in the tech community, being an advocate for women in the tech space. And I couldn't be happier for you that you are celebrating your 100th anniversary for the Startup Competitors podcast. Cheers to you, my friend. And here's to 100 more. Thank you. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.